Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Today, America finds itself at a crossroads, caught between two conflicting currents. On one side, there's an aspirational vision of a multicultural, multiracial democracy centered on equity and inclusion. On the other side, a reactionary force aims to preserve a misguided notion of the past, driving us towards authoritarianism. According to my guest, Harvard professor of government, Daniel Ziblatt, the events of January 5th and 6th serve as a stark illustration of these opposing dynamics. We're in the midst of seismic shifts, technological revolutions, demographic changes, and a widening class divide. But the problem isn't confined to institutions or parties or politicians. It also lies with the people. Our nation has been conditioned for more than a century to distrust institutions, a sentiment that has only intensified over the years. From the turn of the last century era of industrialization and racial conflict, through the Cold War, the Kennedy assassination, and more recently, to the COVID pandemic. While Donald Trump may have been the catalyst, the real fuel comes from the voters willing to discard democratic norms to protect their vision of a real America. Certainly we've faced challenges before and risen to meet them, but the pressing question now is, can we rise to meet this one? In his new book, Tyranny of the Minority, Zablad argues that our Constitution inadvertently encourages counter-majoritarian rule. We've fallen behind the rest of the world by failing to modernize our political operating system, thereby allowing partisan minorities to wield disproportionate power. For the GOP, electoral losses have become a signal to double down and consolidate power within a minority base. All of this is about the bedrock of American democracy. Daniel Zablatt's latest work, co-authored with his colleague Stephen Levitsky, is Tyranny of the Minority. It serves as a clarion call, urging us to confront the institutional inertia and democratic backsliding that is plaguing the nation. It is my pleasure to welcome Daniel Zablatt here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here, even on a subject that is a, a little bit depressing in and of itself. Yes. One yes. of the things that has been written about and that, that you and your co-author talk about is this idea that, that multiracial, multi-ethnic democracies don't have a very good track record. And it seems that when you add in technology, the speed at which events are moving today, the distrust that's inherent in our process, plus the state of our constitution, it's not a very promising picture. Talk about that first. Yeah, well, first I should say that you know these are all these developments that you talk about. Uh, in many ways, are very welcome de developments. You know, I think America is a much stronger, uh, much um, more vibrant uh, mm -hmm. society because of its diversity, and this is a this is a dynamic that's been you know part of America from its from its early days. You know, as a country of immigration. So um, the the question is how do we how do we cope with the challenges that accompany this? And uh, one of the things that we uh, make the case for in our book is that there's a reaction to this, that just as in the 19th century, in an effort to uh, create uh, a, the first, our first attempt really at creating a multiracial democracy after the end of the Civil War in, in the U.S. South, where voting rights were extended to African-American men, not to women, uh, that, you know, this was a valiant effort, but it, it uh, faced a backlash and a reaction of those who were being displaced or felt they were being displaced 
the white kind of property holders of the U.S. South pushed back against this and dismantled uh, uh, the democ- the emerging democracy. So similarly today, we have an increasingly diverse society. And after 1965, really a fully democratic society in that all Americans of all races, uh, all citizens had the right to vote. And uh, as throughout history, and we really you know studied both of my co-author and I spent a lot of time studying democracies in other parts of the world, moments of inclusion are often, you know, not necessarily, but, you know, it's not a kind of automatic reaction, but they tend to be followed by moments of exclusion, pushback, efforts to kind of re- uh, restrict the the kind of vote and and political rights, and so that's that's essentially what we're living through today. And as we see that pushback, I guess the broader question is, and it goes to to the constitutional arguments and 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 some of the things that you talk about in the book. This notion that we don't have the operating system to accommodate this change. It's difficult to accommodate the pushback because of the system that we have. Yeah. So so the first point that we just talked about is something that I think a lot of people. Have made made um pointed out i mean i think where we have a distinctive angle on this is really pointing out that our political institutions and our constitution um you know which in many ways are admirable and have served us very well at different points in our history do have a do have a kind of problem that we have not updated our institutions i mean the 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 thing to remember about our constitution is that you know it it's a pre-democratic document it's the oldest written constitution in the world which you know, at some level, you may your listeners may say, well, that must mean it's worked pretty well, and I think that's right. I mean, it's a remarkable document. It's worked very well throughout our history in producing stability, and we did have a civil war, but compared to other countries around the world, it's been a remarkably successful document. It's given us our prosperity, I think, in many ways. But one of the reasons why the Constitution has worked so well is that from the very beginning, we have uh, amended it, we've changed it, we've updated it. You know, think of the Bill of Rights immediately after the convention. Uh, think after the Civil War, the expansion of voting rights to African-American men, the uh, equal, uh, the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed equal rights for all citizens. The beginning of the 20th century, the women were given the right to vote. Uh, and also at the beginning of the 20th century, we began to elect our senators rather than appointing them. These all required changes to our constitution. And this continued all the way up. You know, people did the hard work of improving our democracy up through the 1960s. And what we kind of note is that really beginning around 1970, we stopped doing that work. And unlike other democracies, which have continued to, which often began in much less democratic situations than we did. I mean, our constitution was, uh, you know, for all of its flaws, was more kind of Republican and and democratic, uh, small d democratic than any other constitution at the time. But whereas other countries have continued to improve their constitutions and make them more democratic, partly because of the difficulty of changing our constitution, we've stopped doing that work. And I think it, you can't understand the crisis that we're in today without understanding the failure to continue to democratize our constitution. Which raises the question of why we have entered this stasis period with respect to the const- changing the constitution. Yeah, it's a really good question. And we, we contend with that a bit in the book. And, you know, there's a lot, there are a couple of different things I would point to. Uh, first of all, it. One thing is that the U.S. Constitution is actually the hardest constitution in the world to change, which is not a small uh, detail. You know, again, if you want to understand why we are where we are, it it just you know you have to. There's two paths in the Constitution for amending the Constitution. One is a constitutional convention, which I don't think is a, we don't make the case for that. I think that would be quite quite a dangerous path to go. But there's a more common route, uh, which is to amend the Constitution through a procedure where two thirds of the House of Representatives approves of something, two thirds of the Senate and three quarters of the states. Now, that's really a a cumbersome process. And the founders were right to make this difficult because we don't want any 
kind of political leader to come into office and be able to change the constitution. And most countries do make it difficult to change the constitution, but other countries do things such as it's quite common in Scandinavia, for instance, to uh, make it that you have to have two thirds of two successive uh, parliaments do it. So, you know, essentially it has to be done twice uh, and with this supermajority requirement. But that is a, that makes it easier. So to take a country that we uh, dig into a bit in the book, uh, Norway, which is, a, which is a country. And we were in, really interested in Norway. It's fascinating because it has the world's second oldest written constitution after the U.S. And yet it's been amended hundreds of times. And today, Norway by all accounts, is, uh, you know, th- th- these international indices that measure how vibrant a democracy is. Norway is among the most vibrant and, and enduring democracies in the world today. And that's because it's been easier to change the constitution. So so the first part of the answer to your question, why it's we stopped doing this, is that's always been difficult. But what's different about now? And I think there's two points I would make here. One, we live in a highly polarized time, which is, you know, part of the, the source of the problem, but also a barrier to solving the problem. So it's hard to get uh, representatives of both parties to agree on these things. But I think even a kind of more critical point in a way that's somehow underappreciated is we've lost our kind of constitutional imagination. I think most Americans respond to the idea that we could make our system more democratic with a sense of like, well, you know, that's never going to happen. Um, and we've forgotten that this is part of the American tradition. And we're today, what we're doing today is actually radical. What our proposals are not radical. What we're doing today is radical and engaging in this experiment of non-reform. Um, and so I, part of the purpose of the book is to tell the stories of how the Constitution has been changed in the past in the U.S. as well as in other countries to remind Americans that this is our democracy and we can, you know, we can change things. At a poll that just came out, I just saw – uh, this morning before I came on the air, a survey done by Pew found finds that overwhelming majorities of Americans want to get rid of the Electoral College. We're the only democracy in the world with an Electoral College for selecting a president. So, you know, between the fact that we're a total global outlier and that most Americans want to change this, this is something that we should sort of begin to think about. How much difference does it make in a country like Norway that the population is so much more homogeneous than it is with, with what we're trying to do here in America? Well, very interesting. You raised that point. Twenty uh, percent of uh, Norwegian people living in Norway today are, are foreign born, which is a number very similar to our own numbers. Um, so, you know, th- it's true that the U.S. is a country that um, uh, has been a kind of pioneer in a sense in, in diversity and, and uh, you know, a country of immigration historically and since the 1960s as well. But what's so fascinating is that a lot of uh, Europe, Europe's countries facing, you know, different different history, certainly with often, you know, not Norway, but other countries with a history of colonialism, let's say France, you know, are the kind of counterpoints to our history of slavery. Um, and also then, you know, have become in the last 30 years, much more diverse political societies. And so I think in a way, um, you know, we I think we have more substantial challenges on this front, given our direct history of, of slavery. But all societies are becoming more diverse and, and everywhere this is prompting a backlash and there's a kind of authoritarian backlash. You know, in Sweden, there's a right wing party that's, you know, in power and a coalition government. There's, you know, the, the Le Pen in France, you know, almost won the presidency in Germany. There's far, far right movements. And so there's a real backlash everywhere. And what's so fascinating is that these back these kind of patterns of backlash look very similar from country to country. It's usually around 30 percent of the electorate. Uh, which is a kind of similar sort of number, I would, you know, according to most estimates of the kind of MAGA core of the Trump base. Uh, the difference between the United States and a lot of these other countries is that our constitution allows for that 30 percent 
into power in a way that other countries don't. So even in a place like Sweden or in Italy, where you have far right parties in power, they're always in coalition. Uh, they have to form coal. And so this kind of contains the, 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 the kind of damaging effects, I think, of these movements. In the United States, our system empowers this kind of minority. And that's why we call this the tyranny of the minority. How much does distrust of government and distrust of institutions play a role in this? That seems to be amped up here more than it is, for example, in some of the European countries we're talking about. Yeah, you, I think you are right. You, you mentioned this in, in your opener that this is part of the problem. But, I, you know, I think it's it's I think this is a, a barrier um, to reform. Uh, it's also a kind of source of, of alienation that provides fertile terrain for for extremist forces who appeal to voters along lines saying the system is rigged, you know, come support us. But, you know, I think one way of thinking about how we get out of this situation, I mean, certainly there's lots of avenues of trying to address this. But I think one of the sources of alienation and disaffection and distrust is the fact that very popular things are often getting thwarted. So take gun control. Overwhelming majorities of Americans think that there needs to be some kind of you know, there may be disagreements on amount, how much gun control, but there need to be some kind of limits put on the, the use of guns and the sale of guns and distribution of guns and access to guns. But these very popular uh, uh, bills are often held up in the Senate due to the filibuster. So, you know, take action on climate change, uh, abortion rights, uh, um, you know, efforts to uh, raise the minimum wage. There's all sorts of very popular uh, policy ideas that are supported by majorities of Americans, which are often thwarted by our institutions. And so my sense is that if if we had a system in which majorities could actually speak, and this is why, again, you kind of make the case for reform, such as eliminating or weakening the filibuster, that this would generate a kind of sense of enthusiasm and possibility that we can control our own democracy. And I think so many Americans feel that they can't change their democracy, and so they become disengaged, and it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where you think, well, my vote doesn't make a difference, so I won't vote. And that comes true because, in fact, not voting is going to lead to outcomes that you don't like. One of the things that plays into this and that we see inherent in our politics today is this division between policy issues on the one hand and culture war slash emotional issues on the other hand. Talk a little bit about that and the way that is really feeding in to this danger. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think there are these kind of uh, you know, we talked about race already, but there are a whole range of other kind of hot button cultural issues. And, you know, these are these are issues upon which it's easy to mobilize voters. And so if you have policy positions which are not particularly po popular, but they can't garner majority support, support, it's it's very common for politicians to try to change the topic of conversation to issues that can generate enthusiasm. And so we have this kind of outrage industry, uh, both in the media as well as um, as well as among politicians. And so, you know, if you're pushing for uh, uh, kind of complex policy proposals that aren't very popular, then you and that's not going to mobilize voters. You're not going to win elections. And so it's much easier to talk about really hot button, simplified issues. You know, I was actually just recently looking at the 1912 Progressive Party platform, which was you know, Theodore Roosevelt after being president ran for president um, a second time, and he lost the Republican nomination. 
and uh, ran as a progressive party candidate. And it, this long document with detailed policy proposals, including things such as giving women the right to vote, you know, uh, uh, income tax, these complex policy proposals. You know, what's so striking today is the Republican Party in the 2020 election didn't even have a Republican Party platform, right. didn't even have a platform. Uh, because the the party wasn't really running on ideas. Uh, and so I think what very often happens, if a party doesn't have ideas, what you then instead run on is resentments. And that, of course, infl- you know, the thing about running on resentments is it's like a short-term kind of fix for a party because you can kind of maybe win an election in the short run. But the, over the long run, you're inflaming your population, and it's, very a rec- it's a very reckless form of politics. Since the constitutional solutions don't seem to be effective, as as we've been talking about, are there extra constitutional answers to maybe begin to turn this ship around? Even things as controversial as they are, like third and fourth parties that may come along that that change the dynamic, change the landscape in a way that that shakes it up enough that something positive could happen. Yeah. So, so in our book, we have the our last chapter. We have fifteen proposals for reform. Um, and so, you know, I encourage your listeners to go look at that. I mean, we, it's, some of these are, 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 you know, really stretches and others are more realistic and, you know, we didn't, it's not a kind of random list. There was a real logic to the list. The list are reforms that other democracies have introduced number one, so that are things that have been proven to work well. Um, and they, some of them, in fact, are, there's a path to reform. And so some of these things that I think are not that don't require constitutional change, uh, that are within reach include some institutional reforms, let's say, like getting rid of or weakening the filibuster. I mean, the filibuster has been changed often throughout its history. As late as the 1970s, the threshold for getting a bill through was lowered. It could be lowered again. And all this requires is a vote in the Senate. Uh, it could, you know, you, there's carve outs for the filibuster. You could add a carve out for, let's say, the protecting of voting rights. Uh, so these are things that only you only need the Senate to approve, does not require a president to sign it, does not require the, the House of Representatives to support it, let alone other state, the, the states. So that, that's one thing, the filibuster reform. Uh, similarly, efforts to um, – one something else on our list is uh, to uh, have states pass uh, laws that have automatic voter registration. Pennsylvania just recently did this. A lot of states are doing this to make it easier to vote. In most democracies around the world, governments make it easier to, for voters to vote, not more difficult. And this is something that can be done at the state level and does not require constitutional change. If you, if you have automatic voter registration, it makes it easier to vote. You will allow majorities to speak more clearly. And I think this ultimately would have a positive effect. Similarly, voting rights protections at the national level, this, there was a bill that almost passed two years ago um, that got held up by the filibuster. So if we eliminated the filibuster or weakened the filibuster, you could then pass voting rights reform at the national level. So these are all reforms. Now, to come to your particular suggestion of multiple parties, you know, I I agree entirely with you. I mean, I think our democracy would be enriched with multiple parties. Um, uh, Most democracies do, in fact, have multiple parties. But here's the catch. In our current system, the rules are set up. We have an electoral system where each congressional district sends one member of Congress. Uh, that is a system that really political scientists have demonstrated lends itself to a two-party system. It's very hard for a third party to win. And so given the rules of the game that we have, I think it's a mistake to try to support third-party candidates because they will, they will in fact, um, not make it into office. And you may think, well, you're sending a message to the to, to politicians, and you know I can understand that, 
But often it, it backfires because, in fact, you kind of split the vote in a way that's counterproductive. And the guy that you don't like might end up in office. So if you want a multi-party system, one of the proposals we make in our in our last chapter is to introduce a form of proportional representation, which requires changing the voting rules. So you have to get the sequence right. If you change the voting rules, and you and this is something that's left up to the states, you know, a kind of key term here for people to look up is uh, uh, ranked order voting. It's up to the states to determine their own voting rules. If you introduce ranked order voting, various forms of proportional representation, then it would be easier for, for more parties to emerge. And I think ultimately would all work to the benefit of our democracy. Some of these problems that we're seeing on the national level are filtering down to states and state legislatures. And we see excessive gerrymandering and voting rights issues and things that are, are determined by the states that are reflecting many of the national problems that we're talking about. Yeah, that's really where the battle is taking place right now. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes people will ask us, you know, is the future going to, in the United States going to look like Hungary or Russia? And I think that's really kind of exaggerated at the national level because you really have two, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party battling it out. And I think the Democratic Party uh, is quite robust in its opposition to Trumpism and so on. But where you see kind of mini Hungaries occurring is at the state level. You know, there's really a lot of states in the U.S. where voting rights are under assault, where it's, the efforts are being made to make it more difficult to vote, uh, number one. Number two, uh, g- gerrymandering, where, this, where state legislatures, once in o- once a party's in office, redraw the boundaries to make it so it's harder to vote them out of office. Uh, to give you an example of this, uh, the state of uh, Wisconsin is a state where the Republican, where the Dem- where there's more Democrats than Republicans. So the Democrats, you know, for statewide offices where everybody votes and every vote is counted for the governorship, there's a Democratic governor in Wisconsin. But because of gerrymandering, that those same voters produce overwhelming lopsided victories because of the way that the territory is uh, carved up for Republicans. Then once Republicans are uh, in office and control the state legislature, they're then responsible for drawing boundaries and they continue to draw boundaries in a way that makes it harder for them to be voted out of office. And then the final step of this kind of process is uh, to try to shape the court system. And so what's happened in Wisconsin uh, is really just a remarkable process where there was an election where you had a, 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 a senator or a justice selected and they have elections for justices in the state of Wisconsin that the Republican state legislature is in the effort to try that, that, that judge when running for her judgeship said that she wanted to take on gerrymandering. Once she's come into office, before she's even ruled on a single case, the state legislature is pursuing impeachment against her before she's even ruled on a case because they say she's biased against them. And so there's an effort to remove her from office. And all of this is kind of hardball politics to try to entrench a party in power. And so there's a lot of states across the U.S. where this is happening. And this is very worrying because if you look back at American history, again, to the 19th century, the Reconstruction period, which we describe again pretty good detail on our book. This is where uh, democracy dies is at the state level. And this is where the issue of there being so many moving parts in the process that it's hard to imagine any kind of a grand bargain or grand solution. I mean, it raises the point, you know, that Donald Rumsfeld used to make that if you have an intractable problem, maybe the only solution is a bigger problem. And, and, and which really raises the question, do we have does things have to get worse before they get better? Do we have to bottom out in some way? Yeah, you know, I'm not a big believer in that theory of history. I think usually when we bottom out, things just get worse. Um, you know, so uh, you know, I think the the you know one might say uh, that well, we you know if we really bottom out, then we can learn, and then we re- and that is true. That I mean, I do think at some point uh, democracies often going after going through a catastrophe learn 
and realize that there's a lot at stake. And I think that's this helps explain, for instance, the robustness of German, relative robustness of German democracy today, having gone through the, you know, the horrors of Nazism that, you know, the first couple of generations after World War II really realized that democracy is something that needed to be defended. So one might say, well, maybe we need to go through a kind of process of really where we lose our democracy to appreciate it. But, you know, I, I'm a believer in a kind of a very clever line from Otto von Bismarck, actually, that the German statesman from the 19th century, who said that only a fool learns from his own mistakes. The wise man learns from the mistakes of others. And so one of the reasons we wrote this book really is to try to draw lessons from history from other countries to warn Americans and let Americans know that there's incredible opportunities and to learn from other countries. And there's also incredible dangers and to try to avoid that fate ourselves. So I really, you know, you know, hope that people look at it and realize that there is a lot at stake and we need to avoid bottoming out, uh, hopefully, before trying to reconstruct our democracy. We know how powerful personality and leadership is on the authoritarian side. We've seen it over and over again. What about leadership on the other side and how important is that? Yeah, really very, very critical. I'm glad you raised that question. Um, Really, there's two ways in which I think leadership uh, really matters and and can make a difference. Um, Number one, uh, when faced with authoritarian threats, it's absolutely critical for you know so it, so in our book we lay out a kind of basic test of what it counts to be an authoritarian if somebody if somebody or a party uh, has to accept elections win or lose uh, number two they have to not use violence to try to gain power and number three and this gets to the point of leadership if you're a mainstream party or politician or political leader and your allies engage in any of those first two behaviors you have to vehemently vocally condemn distance yourself from and hold accountable anybody who engages in that kind of behavior. Now, it's very tempting if you're a political leader to kind of look to the next election and think, well, I would rather kind of remain silent or justify or excuse uh, uh, bad behavior from my allies. But, you know, looking at the history of democracy, and again, we recount this in the book, this is how democracies get into trouble is when mainstream politicians who sort of appear like Democrats, democratic, small, you know, appear committed to democracy, ultimately choose their own career prospects over a commitment to democracy. And I think that's the kind of situation we face today. I mean, this recent report came out of Mitt Romney describing many uh, members of the Senate, many of his colleagues and party friends who said, you know, I of course I know that Trump lost the election, but I'm, I'm kind of afraid uh, to go cross him. And what political leadership is, is the courage to recognize that some things matter more than party. I mean, this is this is a kind of cliche, but it's absolutely critical for democracies to survive. It's when political leaders don't do that, that democracy has gotten into trouble. So that, that's that's one thing. And then a second point I would make about leadership is that leadership is about being creative and finding coalitions. And so when the stack seems to be, in, or the deck seems to be stacked against you in terms of trying to find, find a coalition, to find partners, to push through reforms, leadership is about political creativity and finding new alliances, finding new friends, finding new people you may disagree with about a lot of things, but who you can cooperate with to, to, to form the coalitions to get reform through. I mean, this is how Franklin Roosevelt got the New Deal through. This is how any constitutional reform comes about. So political leadership is about political creativity, and that's something we should reward as well. I guess the other part of it is charismatic leadership, because authoritarian leaders tend to be charismatic inherently, not always, but most of the time. We don't necessarily see a countervailing amount of charismatic leadership coming from a democratic side, at least not not enough. Not at the moment. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I think that 
you know, people often talk about the bully pulpit, the power of the bully pulpit of the president who can kind of get up and speak and convince people. And, it, you know, and so political scientists have studied this a lot. And I think the bully pulpit matters, but maybe it doesn't matter as much as we think. Often that often charisma happens behind closed doors. And it's about, it's, you know, it's, I think both things are necessary. Clearly, you need to inspire people, motivate people, articulate a vision of a kind of society that you want to live in. I mean, without that, it's hard to be a political leader. But on the other hand, it's also critical to be able to do the hard work of kind of behind closed doors, forging coalitions, finding partners. And that stuff is kind of less glamorous, but it's just as important for democratic politics. And what does history tell us about generational change and the impact of that in this kind of a difficult situation for democracy? Well, this is one area where I'm actually relatively hopeful in the United States that, you know, there's... You know, there's two key pillars of a kind of multicultural or multi-ethnic or multiracial democracy. One is that uh, kind of embrace of diversity and, uh, well, you know, a diverse society. And number two is the idea that all um, – that a political equality for people of all backgrounds. And if you look at uh, public opinion surveys, it's very clear that younger Americans are much more open to the notion of a multi-ethnic, multiracial democracy. Um, and it's really older generations that have the problem. And so, you know, I think with demographic change, I think ultimately this is a kind of slow moving process. I think this is a this is a sign of, you know, there's there's room for hope. But the problem is that unless we change our institutions to allow those majorities to speak, uh, we're going to continue to be stymied, frustrated, uh, disaffected. And so, you know, you know, if you look at the groups of students and young people who are pushing for gun control, you know, they speak for majorities. But at this point, you know, they they are not able to uh achieve the kind of legislation that would prevent kids from getting shot in schools. And so, you know, generational and demographic change is is certainly necessary, but, it, you know, my concern is that it's not sufficient. We also have to do the work of changing our institutions to empower those, uh, to empower younger people. The other danger with, with generational change is that after a while, they become frustrated and cynical about what they see. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, you know, so in our book, we, we sort of say, you know, ask the reader to imagine uh, a, a young woman born in, let's say, you know, the mid, uh, let's say, 1990, you know, they will, this person will have lived through, um, you know, the presidential elections over the course between 1990 and 2020, in which uh, the loser of the popular vote has twice won the presidency um, in 2000 and in 2016. Um, and you kind of have to think to yourself, like, if that this was your only life experience, don't you begin to kind of begin to think, well, is this political system really worth defending? Is this political system really worth uh, trying to improve upon? Um, and there's great room for disaffection. So, you know, we, we, we you know, if, if you know, I was born in the 1970s, you know, if your listeners are born even before that, you kind of have an image of in your mind of how our political system operates. But again, think of young people growing up today and mm-hmm. having witnessed the kind of political system they've witnessed. And we have to make sure that, you know, we don't get the kind of disaffection that that would understandably emerge out of that life experience. Daniel Zablat, the book is Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point. Daniel, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks so much. Enjoyed it. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.